Thanks. I think it'd be appropriate for us at this time to pray for Art and his dear wife, Bernice, Carol, and the family. Let's bow our heads. Father, as Sherry and I can understand placing a loved one in hospice, knowing what that means, the finality of it, but we do thank you for the ministry of hospice and how they comfort and care, not only for the patient, but for the family. I pray, Father, even more important than the comfort that hospice can provide, we pray for the comfort that your Holy Spirit can provide and how you can lovingly give them hope, as I know they have, even in the sadness. I pray, Father, that Bernice, as she stands by the side of her husband, um, would understand the love and care of Jesus Christ and her family and her church family. And uh, Father, may you just be glorified in this, even the difficulty that, that is involved. Um, we long to be in heaven, but it is difficult to say goodbye here. And, um, but give us that hope that we don't want to grieve like those who have no hope. We want to grieve like those who have hope. Thank you for the song that we just sang and the meaning of it and the comfort and the certainty of a home that we have awaiting for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series, and um, it'll probably go so bad that I'll have to leave in two months. So... How's that for confidence? Um, the title is Lessons That Took Me 71 Years to Learn. And I've used a little graphic that's on the screen right there called Lessons Learned. And the, the way that we're going to handle this is what's, what's on the screen. To recognize mistakes, to observe what works, to document them, and to share them. Uh, several years ago, I wrote a book. Here it is. I can't show you the title in a Christian church. Um, that'll give you... I guess I better tell you what the, this title is. Should I? This is not my language, okay? The title is The Damnedest Sermon I Ever Preached. I was in New Jersey as a pastor and performed a funeral for a family from Jersey. And we went over to the remaining spouse's house for a light luncheon. And this gentleman who was a flag salesman on the, on the shore, Jersey Shore, came up to me and said, Reverend, that was the damnedest sermon I ever heard preached. <laughs> and I tried very carefully not to crack up and uh, but I said to myself, I can't wait to tell Sherry. Um, <laughs> to date, um, I've not sold a single copy of the, mega, <laughs> of the mega 20 books or so that have been printed. You will not be able to find it on Amazon. In fact, the only people who have a copy are my grandchildren and my kids. 
I wrote it exclusively for them. In all seriousness, I wanted them to see the fingerprints of God on their father and grandfather's life. Father, I pray that that's what we would see is the fingerprints of God, not just on this guy that's up here in front talking, but the fingerprints of God on all of our lives. Uh, may that give us hope, may that challenge us, uh, encourage us, uh, whatever way that you wanna work, we want to discover those fingerprints and we wanna act upon them and change where necessary to be encouraged where necessary. In Jesus' name, amen. At the time I wrote this um, book, it was a 55-year journey. It's now been a 71-year journey. And Grace Chapel is a part of uh, the story. And Sherry and I are excited as to see how God is weaving this experience of our time here into our journey. Our key verse is Psalm 77:19. You've heard me refer to it often and Others have um, a pathway no one knew was there. And that sums up, I think, all of our lives as if we take the time to track what the experiences that we've had, we have to admit that it has been a pathway that no one knew was there. So for the next several weeks, I'm going to take us on that uncompleted journey. We'll call it lessons that took me 71 years to learn. It's my desire that you will know something about God and how he works in and around and through individuals that have a heart for him. Jerry Jenkins made a statement, and I love it. He says, to err is human, but when the eraser wears out ahead of the pencil, you're overdoing it. <laughs> and, I, and I love that because I thought, yeah, that sums up my life, and Jerry would go, amen. <laughs> um, Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary, uh, the late Howard Hendricks, said, we are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. And I, and I hope that's an encouragement to you because the way he starts it is says, we're all faced with these series of, of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. There's a Chinese proverb that says, the gem cannot be polished without friction, nor man perfected without trials. And I love this because none of us like friction, we don't like trials, we don't like stress, but that's, the Chinese have it right. That is how we are perfected. I think that Jenkins, Hendricks, and the Chinese basically sum up the lessons that continue to, to be taught over the past 71 years, and I'm still learning the journey is still in progress. My parents named, named me David. When I was in trouble, it was David Lee. Um, and when I was a nice boy, it was Davy. Um, <laughs> we won't go there. Um, one of the things that I liked about David was David was a flawed man. He didn't always have his act together. More often than not, he made stupid choices. And I, I like um, the fact that he's a guy that I can relate to. 
I could never expect to live up to David's leadership character. That was a special gift of God upon his life. But I have and I do want to emulate David's heart. In spite of all the flaws in his life, all the stupid choices, when push came to shove, David in the Old Testament loved God and God knew it. That sums up everything that I'm going to share with you for the two, next two months. Is that when all the stupid choices have been done and everything else takes place, David had a whole heart for God and God knew it. Um, Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 22 in, in the New Testament, uh, ironically, because it's an Old Testament character, but in the New Testament, God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. Not that David didn't have to suffer the ramifications for the poor choices he made in life, but God always restored David back into fellowship with himself because God knew David's heart. And my aim for sharing my journey with you is not so that you could know a whole lot more about me than you ever needed or wanted to know. And while it's true you will learn more about me, I do hope that you're more impressed with what God can do with all of us, with each of us, who have a heart that beats after his heart. First uh, Samuel 13, 14, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And he continues to seek out men and women who have a whole heart uh, that reflects God's heart. I'll start my journey where the Bible starts, and that is in the first chapter, first chapter of the first book, in the first verse. In the beginning, God. That's where my story and that's where your story begins. All of our journeys start here. Whether we have a heart for God or not, our journey starts with God. Ironically, the sincerest atheist who has no interest or does not even believe in God, the sincerest atheist begins his journey with God. He just doesn't know it. Or at least he's not convinced. It was God's idea that you and I were born. Stop to think about that. It was God's idea that we were born. It's part of God's eternal plan. And hear this. None of us here this morning are accidents. We're not accidents. We may be accidents of a human plan, but not of God's plan. Not only are we God's idea, but we were created in God's image. We weren't created in our parents' image. We were created in our, we weren't created in our own image. We were created in God's image. And I'm not sure exactly what that all means, but I am sure that God had a perfect plan, a perfect mold, and a perfect idea that became a reality when you and I were born. God patterned you and me after himself, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. One of the biggest lessons I learned during the past 71 years and I hope that you can relate to this, is that my self-esteem comes 
from who I am. Now, I need to explain that. Who I am is the fact that I am God's idea. You are God's idea. We are God's perfect plan. We come from God's mold. We belong to God. And the secret to a successful life journey with God is simply a matter of our hearts making contact and beating as one. Not that God's heart beats with my heart, but that my heart comes into sync with his. Dr. Paul Brand, one of my favorite authors, illustrates this principle in a book that he wrote called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. He actually wrote two books, and uh, if you come across them, I would recommend that you read them. Dr. Paul Brand, B-R-A-N-D. He said, the biologist takes from an incubator an egg containing a fully developed young chicken. Just 14 days ago, this egg was a single cell. The largest single cell in the world is an unfertilized egg. Now it is a mass of hundreds and millions of cells, a whirlpool of migrating protoplasm, hurriedly diving and arranging itself to prepare for life outside. The biologist cracks the shell and sacrifices the chick. Though the embryo is now dead, some of its cells live on. Word travels fast through the body, but it may be days before the far outposts surrender. From the tiny heart, the biologist extracts a few muscle cells and drops them in saline solution. And under the microscope, the individual cells appear as long, spindly, cylinder, crisscross-like sections of railroad track. Their destiny is to throb, and they persist even in the anarchic uh, world uh, apart from the body. Each cell beats out its incessant rhythm, pitiful and useless palpitations when isolated from the chick. But if properly nourished, these lonely cells can be kept alive. Unlinked by a pacemaker, the cells beat irregularly, spasmodically, each tapping out a rhythm approximate to the 350 beats a minute normal to a chick. But as the observer watches over a period of hours, an astonishing phenomenon occurs. Instead of five independent heart cells contracting at their own pace, first two, then three, and then all the cells pulse in unison, there are no longer five beats, but one. Some species of fireflies act similarly. A wanderer discovers a cluster of them in a jungle clearing, flickering haphazardly. As he watches one by one, the fireflies fall into sync until soon he sees not dozens of twinkling lights, but one light switched on and off with 50 branch locations. The heart cells and the fireflies sense an innate rightness about playing the same note at the same time, even when no conductor is present. Cooperation, a curious phenomenon of cells outside the body, is the essential regimen of life inside. There, every heart cell obeys in tempo, or the animal dies. Each cell is flooded with communication about the rest of the body. 
Ezekiel, I think, refers to this in Ezekiel 18.31, where he says, put all your rebellion behind you and get for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. The message paraphrase says, clean house, no more rebellions, please. Get a new heart, get a new spirit. I'm very fortunate because I had a father and a mother whose hearts beat with God's heart. And I know that that's not true for many of us that are here. I tell you, this is my story and I'm very thankful. I'm very fortunate. Um, They always desired to walk with God. And when they desired to have a child, God gave them a son. My dad had just returned from four years of service with the Army Air Corps during World War II. He had married before he was sent to Europe to assist the Allies in the fight against Germany and its allies. My dad tells the story of the war ending in Germany. He was on a troop ship heading for the war against Japan. Somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea, they got word that the war with Japan was over and that their next port of call would be Newport News, Virginia. When my dad told that to me, tears were coming out of his eyes. Dad recalled the ship coming into the harbor and seeing buildings that were not bombed out and women and children with smiles on their faces who were well-dressed and well-fed. He, along with most of the men on the ship, wept. And when they got off the ship, they hugged anyone available. And many got down on their their knees in tears and kissed the U.S. soil. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen documentaries of that period of time, and perhaps some of your grandmas and grandpas and great-grandmas and grandpas, great-grandpas can tell you personal stories. They were what Tom Brokaw called the, the greatest generation. And I'm a product of that generation. I am a first-year baby boomer. I was born in 1946, and the world has not been the same since. Um, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Sylvester Stallone, Steven Spielberg, Susan Sarandon, Sally Field, Candace Bergen, Cher, Dolly Parton, Danny Glover, Suzanne Somers, Donald Trump, Pat Sajak, and Dave Van Wingerden. <laughs> we'll all turn 72 in 2018. In fact, um, I found a list of over 3,000 actors, actresses, musicians and entrepreneurs and noteworthy politicians that were all born in 1946 because all the guys came home. (laughs) Being a first year baby boomer tells you a lot about me. I didn't go through World War II and I didn't go through the Great Depression, but I was born to parents who did. I have known only relatively relative prosperity and peace. Uh, My dad worked hard to provide a good life for his family. After the war, he started to work for Dow Chemical Company in Midland, Michigan, and continued with that company until he retired. And for most of those years, he was an hourly worker. Mom didn't work, and we lived on dad's paycheck. He never had a lot, but dad's weekly paycheck always put food on the table, clothes on our back, and a home to live in. And because of dad's example, I learned the value of hard work, the value of a work ethic. 
Um, I'm not sure that that is necessarily a value that's always taught today. Dad was careful to budget his money. He had to because there was no other source of income. His weekly paycheck was all there was. I must confess that from time to time I wish we had more money. I wish we could have had a nicer car. Dad almost bought at one time a checker. A checker was a taxi cab. He liked the idea because it was built like an army tank. Uh, my problem was that it looked like an army tank. <laughs> and I wish we could have taken more exotic vacations. I wished we could have blown some money here and there on something wild and adventurous. But that wasn't reality. Dad made sure we had what we needed, and he always came through. If, that, if there ever was a choice in the purchase of stuff between the good, the better, and the best, Dad always made sure we picked the good. Oh, how I would wish um, that we could have had a weak moment and leaped up into the better category every now and then, but good was good enough. In Dad's economy, better and best were not a value. Good was a value. Moderation was a value. Hard work was a value. Paying bills on time was a value. Staying out of debt was a value. Providing for the needs, not always the wants, of his family was a value, and I value my dad for that. But I have a confession. Until we were in the process of preparing to move to Haiti as missionaries, I didn't practice that example. More often than not, we were way over our head in debts and uh, financially, but in order to be able to move to the third world on a very limited income, uh, we had to dissolve all of our credit cards, sell our house, pay off all our bills. Wow, was that a liberating experience. No longer going to the mailbox and getting a load of bills. But I must confess, in Haiti, we didn't have a mailbox, so they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't find us. My dad also taught me how to respect a woman, how to love a wife, how to remain faithful to your spouse through thick and thin. I can only remember one occasion when my parents had a disagreement. Not that they didn't. I only caught them in the middle of a spat one time. And I can't remember if it was my mom or my dad, but one of them stomped out of the house and I was crushed. I thought my world had come to an end. The fact that I can remember it even to this day at 71 years of age is a testament to the impact that it had on my life. My mother had difficulty with my birth, and as a result, she developed some nervous disorders that adversely uh, affected her the rest of her life. She also developed hypoglycemia, very low blood sugar, which at the time that she got it uh, was not being diagnosed in most hospitals. Um, through no fault of her own, she wasn't a very fun person to be around most of the time. I love my mother very much, but sometimes I just wanted to tell her off. But I never dared because dad would have had my life. Uh, respecting one's parents was not a suggestion in our home. It was a rule. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, 2, that we are to honor our father and mother. And I was taught that this was a godly value 
in our home. The Bible also says that a husband is to love his wife with the same love Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. And my dad literally gave up his life for his wife. He taught me that this is a value. No, he showed me that this is a value because values are better caught than taught. My father never once complained to me about my mother, never once. You would agree in the time that you got to know my dad and mom. Even if I thought we had a legitimate gripe, it would not be verbalized. The best gift that my dad ever gave Sherry was showing his son how to treat a woman. My dad taught me how to love unconditionally and how to be worthy of respect. One of the difficult things for me as I wrote this was that I gave it to my dad and mom to read, to correct any errors. It was very difficult for my mother to read what I had printed, um, as you might well expect, and was difficult for my dad too, but I had their blessing. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31, 32, 33. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. When my dad was 86 and my mom 81 and they were living in South Bend, Indiana, we decided to surprise them at Christmas. Where did we live at that time? We lived in Becker, Minnesota. Uh, they didn't know we were coming. When mom opened the door, I could wish you could have seen her face. She started to cry and she couldn't stop. When we got home, I got an email from my dad. He said, what a happy surprise for us when the, you two came on Christmas Day. This was the greatest gift of all. Taking the time and expense just to see your old man and dad was the finest thing you could do. That was beyond our, excuse me, wildest imagination. I'm certainly responsible for the choices I've made during the last 71 years, and I'm going to be gut honest with you as I go through this series and tell you of my failures and my stupid choices. But I was blessed with two models, dad and mom, who showed me not only what the right choices are, but how to make them. In other words, they didn't just preach at me, they showed me. These are the things that you need to be about, son, and how to make them. During the next few weeks, I'm going to continue to take you on my journey, the lessons that have taken me thus far 71 years to learn. And as I shared when we started this journey this morning, it's my desire that you will know something about God and how he works in and around and through individuals that have a heart for him. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers, reflects the lessons I learned from my parents, and I quote, that we are born to be happy is scarcely questioned by anyone. No one bothers to prove that fallen men have any moral right to happiness or that they are in the long run any better off happy. The only question before the house is how to get the most happiness out of life. 
Almost all popular books and plays assume that personal happiness is the legitimate end of the dramatic human struggle. Now I submit that the whole hectic scramble after happiness is an evil as certainly as is the scramble after money or fame or success. How far wrong all this is will be discovered easily by the simple act of reading the New Testament through once with meditation. There the emphasis is not upon happiness, and I hope you get this. There the emphasis is not upon happiness, but upon holiness. God is more concerned with the state of people's hearts than with the state of their feelings. Undoubtedly, the will of God brings final happiness to those who obey. But the most important matter is not how happy we are, but how holy. The soldier does not seek to be happy in the field. He seeks rather to get the fighting over with, to win the war and get back home to his loved ones. There he may enjoy himself to the full. But while the war is on, his most pressing job is to be a good soldier, to acquit himself like a man, regardless of how he feels. I thought it was a powerful quote from A.W. Tozer. Next week, we're going to talk about early spiritual formation. And hopefully you'll be able to relate as you think about your spiritual formation. Romans chapter 8 And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And Romans 11, 29, For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Your Bible, if you have the NIV, says they are irrevocable. Father, I pray that this won't be just Dave's story and we just walk out of here feeling like we learned more than we ever wanted to about Dave's story or Dave's journey. What I pray is that your Holy Spirit would talk to all of us about our own individual stories, that if we are seeking happiness, what you desire and what you, um, your journey that you've designed for us is to make us holy. And that's what we seek. Every one of us, I pray every one of us in this room this morning would seek to have a heart that likes, like the chicks, a heart that would beat with your heart, that we would have a heart that comes into sync with your heart, that we would understand why you created this and the purposes that we have since we have been created so that we can conform to your plan for our life. And through this journey, Lord, may that be our theme, that our hearts would be with your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.